Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, recording this episode in June 2022. Today's episode is all about war and peace, so we'll be thinking about whether war is justified at all, how we should conduct ourselves when in war, and what philosophy itself can bring to our evaluation of war and peace. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Dan McKee, teacher at King Edwards in Aston and writer at Philosophy Unleashed. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. And Lauren Tracekowski, who's senior lecturer at Business School in Aston University. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Nice to be here as well. Uh, great to have the two of you uh, with us. In fact, we were saying just before recording, perhaps I should have just got in the car and driven up to Birmingham uh, just to see the two of you, but perhaps next time. You're very welcome. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about war and peace uh, today. For any A-level or IB or hires students listening in, this topic appears on the Edexcel curriculum uh, at the moment, although AQA does mention simulated killing in video games, but I hope our discussion will be of interest to students uh, outside of those doing Edexcel uh, and of interest to lots of people anyway. So if you're doing an extended essay, you might want to do it on uh, just war theory or pacifism or something like that. Um, so to get us going, let's think about some um, general philosophical questions we might want to raise about uh, war and peace. Who wants to get us going on giving us some general ideas? I mean, I'm happy to say some general stuff about the, the philosophy around it, because it's such an interesting issue. I mean, you, you hear about war all the time. It's a, it's a fact of history and human society, and there's usually a war going on at the moment somewhere in the world. So it's sort of always part of the furniture of everyday life. But there's so many questions because most of the time, if you have to kill someone or harm someone or cause violence against other people, we prohibit that and say that's something we shouldn't be doing. And the very institutions that tell us we shouldn't do that and put us in jail if we do that as individual citizens are the same institutions that tell us to go off and kill people and commit violence and do terrible things in their name or in their defense when we go to war. So there's already this strange tension, I think, in our moral life between the things we are supposed to do as individual citizens in day-to-day life and then the things on a state or global or group level when it comes to war where suddenly those things are okay but only okay because we're at war. So war has this sort of question mark of what makes it special, what makes it different, or as philosophers, you know, is it special, is it different, or is it just a word being used to pretend that things are okay that are not okay? So there's questions about, you know, what governments can and can't do, should and shouldn't do, but then there's questions as citizens, like, do we go along with it because the government said that we should and shouldn't, and if my country is at war, does that mean I'm at war? And those are, those are big issues. And then there's the questions of, and when you are at war, now, what, what can you do in war? Is, is war okay? Is, is it a free-for-all? Do you do whatever? Or are there certain limits of what you can do in war? So can you torture people? Can you imprison people? Can you take over lands? Can you take territory? You know, there's all these big questions about it. And that's just off the top of my head, just a couple of things that in the very starting point, you know, you hear the word war, we accept it. But I guess as philosophers, we go, should we accept it? And, and actually, it's far more complicated than say, the Daily News would let us believe. Yeah, thanks. That's really helpful. Lauren, have you got anything you want to add to that? Yeah, going off of something that Dan said, you know, is it different? Is war something different? And so do our ethics change? And my area of interest in research is disaster ethics. And so I hope one of the things that comes across from my perspective is, no, it's not different. It should be the same ethics. And so, but how do we, how do we square that circle? Because 
there is a different situation going on, but should our ethics be different? And how do we how do we put all those things together? So um, that's just me leading off of something that Dan said. I think that's really, really important. Think questions as I was, you know, preparing for this session, some of the questions that I was asking myself, can war be the most ethical thing possible? Can can it actually not just be is it ethical or not, is is it actually the most ethical thing? Or is it never ever ethical under any circumstances, even if we're following in the just war tradition, things like that? Is is it the killing or is it the war itself that needs to be ethically considered? So I know in this session we'll go through just ad bellum, in bello, and post, and and these questions of well, what part of this are we actually trying to understand? Because I think that the killing versus the impact on the environment versus the upheaval in society versus the bringing us back post any kind of invasion or anything are very different things. So what is it that we're actually ethically inquiring about? Another thing, if we talk about nuclear weapons at all, but is modern warfare actually the most ethical way we can wage war because you don't target civilians? Or is it the worst thing in the world, the most ethical, because it's this sudden mass destruction? And I thought that was the, there's these interesting dichotomies, uh, not just war and peace as dichotomies, but these interesting dichotomies of you can take any question that we want to ask about war and ask its exact opposite, and it still is poignant and it still is important. Um, So that's kind of the things that I started thinking about as well. Great. Thank you for both of you. That's really good introductory thoughts. So listen up, everyone. Stay tuned because we're going to be doing some uh, really big things. And and you're you're both right. So, So war itself is an extreme sort of human event, but it asks all of these or raises all of these really big philosophical questions for us. So I think as we've both of you have indicated, we're going to be thinking through this in kind of fairly methodically in different segments. So coming up, we'll be thinking about our conduct in war, what happens after there's been a war, and thinking about pacifism. But we're going to start with what happens when we go to war, often referred to as just ad bellum. So there's a, there's a huge tradition, which we're not going to be able to cover very much at all, I think, uh, in this uh, in this episode, around just war theory, which has roots in different traditions. Christian tradition has, a, has, has uh, very deep roots going back uh, to uh, New Testament and refined a lot by Thomas Aquinas. And there's, there's loads of modern writings that, that come out from that, both religious-inspired and, and, and non-religious-inspired. Uh, but there's various, uh, often thought, uh, criteria or conditions that have to be satisfied um, in order for a war to be just, for us to start waging a war, going to war. Should we go through some of those in order or methodically to give us some sort of structure to, to kind of then think about these these big questions? So does someone want to kick things off and take us through one or two of these conditions? Should I kick off this? I'll go first. Uh, so the first one is always a just cause. Do you have a, a, a right or a just reason for waging war? Legitimate authority. Are you the right people or the right institution to be waging war? And I think that's an easy one for us to say the answer to, but then the reasons behind it we can unpack. Right intention, getting a little mm-hmm. bit of a deontology in there. Reasonable expectation of success, proportionality, and last resort. And last resort's the one that frustrates me the most. So, uh, <laughs> so that's my list of six. There you go. Okay. 
Great. So should we should we go through those in, in your order then, uh, Lauren? Um, so should we think about just cause then? Yeah, for just cause, Walter describes it as an issue that shocks the conscience of mankind. So it should be humankind. Thank you very much. Uh, but shocks the conscience. And so something that you go, look, this is the only thing that that we can do. You know, we have to act. We, we're, we're compelled to act on behalf. And the thing that I always think about when I think about just cause is the genocide threshold. And I like talking about the genocide threshold. I don't like talking about genocide, but I like talking about the genocide threshold because it's you never define it. And it's so important that we don't define numbers. And you go, well, yeah, but I mean, we want to know when somebody's committing genocide. And you go, yeah, but genocide could be one person. And if one person out of the is the last of their culture and then they're killed, it is a genocide. And so it's this really interesting conversation to have around just cause because you go, well, is it 10,000 people? Then we're waiting for that last that 10,000th person to be killed, and then we can wage a war? Or is there actually something more fundamental than the number of people and the reason, the justification underneath it, that it's actually a good reason to go to war, to wage war, to to take some sort of violent action? So that's my just cause. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think the whole problem for me with just cause, which seems so obvious, of course, a just war would have to be a war fought for a just cause. But we just can't agree on what a just cause would be. And and for me, furthermore, we can't necessarily trust the claims of what a cause for a war is, because there's never been a war that a country has declared to say, well, actually, this is for the wrong reasons. We're not we're not doing this for any just cause. We just want to kill a bunch of people. So there's always been propaganda. There's been stories, myths, legends we tell to say this is why we are in the right. And when you have that sort of caveat with if you look at the the national story of every war, whichever side of a conflict you're on, their side is always in the right, then it becomes almost an empty condition because, of course, it's a just cause if, you, if you've chosen to go to war according to linking to the other one, the legitimate authority. And there's a problem sometimes that even a legitimate authority, if you believe in such a thing, is still going to try and sell the best story of the cause. And we see propaganda, we see misinformation in the media, we see just even selective historical starting points. You talk about genocide thresholds. You know, if I'm saying, oh, we have to go to war because we have to defend this because of this circumstance, but I miss out from that story, maybe the things we did that might have started the process that led to the other side doing that thing to us in the first place. So sort of selective historical perspective of things. It's really hard to say, yeah, that, that cause was just. And then you bring the media into it and different people's interest in reporting certain ideas and why certain stories might get more coverage. And you suddenly sit there going, well, hang on, if everyone's got a just cause and I can't necessarily trust independently or as a citizen, and this is back to that question of governments versus citizens, as a citizen, do I have the time or ability or resources to actually investigate to see if the cause I've been told is just is actually just unless I've got you know a research grant and plenty of years to do it and the information is available because some of it might be top secret you know all of that stuff and I think the good example of that is probably um, you know the the Iraq war in 2003 where essentially in Britain the government said Tony Blair has seen some stuff you've got to trust him he's seen the stuff and Saddam Hussein is this terrible threat and he's seen things you haven't seen and, and that's why we've got to go to war which turns out he hadn't seen stuff and there wasn't the weapons of mass destruction that we were told there were. So you you kind of are in this weird limbo of how do I know that the cause is just, even if there's a really lovely story, 
and makes it feel very, very just. The example that I was going to throw in there when, when you were saying the just cause and genocide threshold is look at World War II and U.S. deciding to step up into World War II. It's like, oh, OK, well, you know, they're they're committing a genocide in, in Germany. And you go, yeah, but that's not actually the reason that they stepped in. So we we are told, I mean, as, as an American, you know, we are told this story of, oh, you know, we found out and that we we went in to help for this just cause. And it less than being propaganda, because. That is one of the reasons, but it wasn't the trigger. It's like, well, we knew for a while that there was a genocide. So that wasn't the just cause. It's a good reason. And I'm glad that we went in to stop a genocide, but it wasn't the trigger. And so maybe there's a difference as well between a just cause and the thing that actually tips us over the edge. Yeah. So so just to come in there, uh, I think that's really helpful. So just for for the students listening, we might want to tease apart then, because I I imagine some students often get confused. There's certainly students when I've taught that this material just get a little bit confused between uh, two of those conditions. So just cause and right intention, just picking up on exactly what you were saying, Lauren, because the cause itself might be just. And in fact, I'm sure there were many American soldiers, right, who were fighting, who were convinced, as indeed there were people in, in Britain and elsewhere who were very much convinced of the, the justness of the cause. And I think Second World War is often held up as being, a, you know, if any war is going to be just, it's going to be that one. But the intentions that people themselves might have might not be as just as one would think or not as honourable. Right. So they might be more about gaining political advantage, gaining economic advantage to take to two obvious examples. And so it's really important then that the cause itself might be just, but some politicians, indeed some soldiers, might have the wrong intention. The cause might be just, but perhaps, as I've said, politicians might be motivated by political and economic gain. Some soldiers might be motivated by just wanting to go to war, right? Okay, and that's what's really important to have those two conditions separated. And I think there's also this element of, even if you have a different intention than the just cause that's put out there, and your intention is still good, that intention might not actually be big enough yeah. to trigger the just cause. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you have this just cause, and again, I'll go back to World War II, you have this just cause of stopping genocide, fine. But your intention might be, instead of political or economic gain, the intention might have been actually economic and political stability, like stop what's going to happen to us in the long term, right? And that's actually a just cause, you know, stopping economic, political and possibly civilian upheaval as a result of invasion and things like that. That's actually not a, an unjust cause, but it's not a big enough just cause to trigger that, that war, yeah. that, that war good. footing. Good, good. So can I just, oh, go on then, Dan. And I'll, I'll, I, was just, I, th- I think a lot of this, we, we, we haven't mentioned the sort of origins of just war theory. Um, as 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 we're talking about it now in the Christian tradition, which is sort of I think where this comes from, because it started with Augustine saying legitimate authority and just cause are the two sort of uh, conditions for a just war. Because at that point in sort of medieval times, they were looking at their Bible and they were thinking, what is the mission that God wants us to do? Does God want us to go to war? Does God want peace? Because there are passages in the Bible where Jesus is talking about peace, peace, peace. And then there's passage in the Bible where God says, go kill them all, every man, woman and child and animal, in fact. So there's there's like this contradiction that Augustine saw. And, and I think the, the logic behind the, the, the original just war theory was how do we square this circle of a God that seems to say peace, 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 but also go kill everyone. And the idea was, well, if it's for the just cause, 
and it comes from legitimate authority, which again comes from this religious idea that God is, if you're a leader in human society, God is somehow ordained you with that and you're protecting people like a steward for God. So through God, if it's for the just cause, we can fight in that war. And then Thomas Aquinas sort of looked at that and brought in this idea of right intention, because again, when we talk about intention from a theistic point of view, there's the idea that God knows what our intention is. So just in case the things we said where maybe governments might lie to get us to go to war on a false just cause, Aquinas is trying to sort of appeal to their religious belief and say, well, if you do that, you know, God still knows what your true intention were. So you might have gone to war and told us it was a just cause, but God will send you to hell for your malicious intent. And that's maybe, again, one of the problems with the, the religious background of just war theory in the modern day is if we're using this idea that implies intention is important because there's a supernatural deity that's knowing what your intention is and will hold you to account for it, even if international criminal courts and things don't, that's obviously problematic if there is no God and if there is just lots of devastation in your path and you claimed your intention was something. So one of the problems with right intention is, again, how, how do we know someone's intention? For Aquinas, it was clear. We don't have to. God does. But in, in 2022, I don't know how I know soldiers or my government or anyone's intention when we want to go to war. Yeah, that's the problem in being uh, someone in a court and trying to work out. I mean, I mean, any sort of court, right? Not just war tribunals, but, you know, the difference between murder and manslaughter and working yeah. out whether someone, when they misled the House of Commons, was knowingly misleading the House of Commons to take another example. Um, just thinking about going back to just cause then, just perhaps to finish that condition off, then we'll, then we'll move on. So, of course, there, you know, there are some classic cases people often talk about where there are some just causes. So often, you know, when we think about war, we're defending ourselves, but we might also be defending a neighbour who then a third country has come in and, and waged war. So there's country A that's under threat from country B, we're country C, we decide to come to the aid of country A, uh, or in the case of the Second World War, certain people, perhaps, as well as other countries. And people think, look, that's, that's the obvious classic case of a, of a just cause, uh, where, where it may not even be self-defence, but it's defence of weaker, more vulnerable um, others. I mean, what do we think about, about that? Is that one OK? I mean, I've, I, I would say there's, it's OK in principle, again, but always in the reality of the, the global system, we end up with that question of, well, why those others and not those? I think there was a big thing with when we went in with Bosnia and stuff where people said, well, why didn't we help in Rwanda? And you have that question. And of, now with Ukraine, the same yeah. questions are being asked. Yeah. 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 We, we had a big thing, in fact, in my school scenario where there's, there's been a lot of people, you know, with, with Israel, Palestine, getting very upset about things happening in Palestine and being told you're not allowed to support that in schools. In fact, the, the government said schools should watch out students having, you know, political biases and supporting a particular side in that and then the government and every bus company in the country has got ukraine flags and saying well we do pick a side on this war because we really care about this this particular conflict so i think there's a huge question there about again the, the cause does feel just to run to the aid of someone who needs aid but why do we pick certain people to help and then it becomes is it really about aid or is it about something else like political stability or treaties friendships uh, you know future profits resources etc Simon, the, the thing you were saying was national defense or helping somebody else who's being invaded by a foreign power. But the other part of that is humanitarian intervention. So if the if the national government is hurting its own people 
And I think that there is there's that other category of possible just cause. And then you, yeah. you look at it's Idi Amin in Uganda, right? And the the idea that if you're committing these atrocity, atrocities against your own people, do we have a just cause to intervene, to do something? And I think that that one gets left off a bit or we 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 think about it, but I think we're even more hesitant when we talk about that kind of war because it comes into that legitimate authority. And if a state is the one that's allowed to make the decision about intervening, well, then how do we like go against a state authority in its own country? And I think that's when the the legitimate authority conversation starts to come in as well. Just, you know, foreshadowing a, a conversation. That's right. Well, well, yeah, in a way, that's a beautiful lead into the next condition. But like, there's one other point I just want to make. And the way I, I kind of just want to make this point, I don't know where we can go with it, but perhaps leave it hanging. But as Dan was talking just now, it occurs to me in the whole just war tradition that there isn't yet another condition, which is if you're waging war here, make sure you're con- you're consistent in all of your other foreign relations. So it's kind of like if you're waging war here, perhaps you should be thinking about waging war there. But there's an obvious reason why that wouldn't be a condition in the just war tradition, which is the just war tradition, at least some people think, was arguably designed to stop many wars happening, right? So that would be a condition which kind of inflates the chances of, of other wars happening. But it seems like it's also a very, very important part of the of the moral mindset if you're going to have some sort of moral framework in which you're going to be um, uh, going to be waging war. In, in, from the examples we were just giving, right, very very modern examples, why this war and not that war? What you're saying suggests that the just war, war criteria, as used by our modern governments, is actually just spin. That, those are your words, Lauren, not mine. No, but I mean, like, but that that's what that suggests, right? That like yeah. that actually we're not thinking about these criteria. Criteria. We're just using them as the framework in order to have talking points. And I would hope that a lot of politicians are actively engaging with this. And I am sure that the military is. I think the military would get uh, a lot of like of a bad rap for, you know, wanting to go to war. But I I am sure, having spoken to many military people, that they are thinking about this and they are they are really trying to adhere to these kind of principles. But then is there also this possibility that it is it is being used as media spin and a smoke screen so that they can figure out a way and, and put it into the language that the public will accept. Well, to combine both of those ideas, that's always been Noam Chomsky's um, criticism of American foreign policy is he's always basically done the same thing. Every war, every article, every book, every talk, which is look for moral consistency. If, if this is what America says it stands for and what it's doing and why it's going to war here, why hasn't it done it here, 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 and here? And you know whether you agree with that and his overall analysis is, is up to you. But that approach to me has always seemed quite convincing to Lauren's point that actually the, 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 whatever the public claims are as to why we're going to war do not seem to be morally consistent. And that is a reason to doubt them, I would say, to maybe suggest that it's, it's been from a government point of view. And, and linking to your point about soldiers, one of the again, ethical issues that emerge from war is from a soldier's point of view, you know, they don't necessarily get to make the choice. And that's one of the big problems that part of operational efficiency in the army is a soldier sort of has to commit to not making individual moral choices and following orders so that things go very efficiently. And that means it's really important that if a government has the authority to send soldiers off to war, that they are doing that thinking because the soldiers aren't allowed to as part of their job. Now, whether you think that's morally right or not is a whole other issue. But 
the fact is that is what the situation is. So if it turns out that the government are not making those legitimate thoughts, they're not really engaging in the just war process, they're just picking what sounds like the best cause and the best intentions to try and sell a story to both the public and the military, uh, then that's a real moral problem as well, because essentially, you know, back to Kant and doing duty, soldiers have to do a duty whether or not they think it's right, know it's right, because their duty is to do what they're told to do. And then they're told in trials like at Nuremberg, they're not allowed to do that. That's morally wrong. So <laughs> we do have a lot of sort of moral inconsistencies throughout all kinds of our approaches to war. Great, good. Well, in this case, because we mentioned the government a few times, should we move on to proper authority, that next condition? So thoughts about, about this one? My thoughts are uh, quite probably clear. In, in a system of our kind of democratic politics, there is a legitimate authority in theory. But I mean, my personal political leanings are towards anarchism, and I would question the legitimacy of many legitimate authorities. And that's one of the big problems, because if you have any kind of doubt about the legitimacy of an authority, and even if you accept dem democracy, there are some people who would say, well, that's a legitimate authority, but we didn't say vote for them. And that's part of the system, first past the, the post, etc. But did we vote for them to be the authority to send us off to war? Or did we vote for them because we want to get Brexit done? Did we vote for them because we want a good economic policy or we want jobs or whatever it is? So it's an interesting question of you know, A, is, is a government a legitimate authority in the first place? Because it was originally back to the, the religious roots. It was done to avoid people from just sort of saying, God told me we should go to war. You know, the right person has to declare war. It can't just be any private citizen. So there's a good, there's a good intention behind it. But if the person in charge is questionably illegitimate because the political system is illegitimate or is a legitimate political leader for other reasons, but not because they've got particularly great aptitude when it comes to declaring wars or not, uh, or they're maybe they're a bit too free and fast with who they're going to send off to war and things like that. There's a real problem with saying just because this person happens to be the prime minister or the foreign secretary or the general, whatever it is, that that means they can send other people off to die. Because I think the big issue with all of this stuff about war compared to everyday killing is war is about sending these groups of people, soldiers, off to die as sort of symbols of the rest of the country and take their lives as a substitute for everyone else's. And the person with legitimate authority tends not to be going off to war. They tend to be declaring that you can go off to war now and I'll stay here. And so there's a question of, well, would the legitimate authority then be someone who is actually in the army who is going off to fight? But we don't want that because people worry that that then becomes a military dictatorship. So I think it unlocks a lot of problems and questions in political philosophy in general about what a legitimate authority is. We don't agree on that as a you know, human society. We, we've got all kinds of different ideas about where the legitimacy is. You know, in a democracy, theoretically, the authority comes from the people. So should we be voting on every single war and saying we don't go to war unless a super majority of citizens say that we should go to war? And then also that would link to maybe then they should be conscripted into the army as well because they've agreed we are going to go to war, not we agree you should go to war. So I think legitimate authority throws up a lot of questions about legitimacy and authority. But if we're going to take it seriously, we need to kind of go, what is it we're giving them authority to do and what makes such an authority legitimate in the context of sending people to war? And I don't think just ticking a box and saying the government said it was OK, therefore it's legitimate is enough. Great. Uh, Lauren? 
I'm going to, I'm going to go off of that and go in the opposite direction. Right. Uh-huh. So, so you're saying, you know, what makes the government the legitimate authority? And that, I love that question. And I think that that that's where we need to be, to be talking about it, but I'm going to take it from the other side and say, okay, so in international relations and in international law, we say that the state is the only legitimate authority that can wage war, that can declare war and things like that. So not ignoring what the discussion that you're having, but rather going, okay, well, this is the practicality of what what happens. Now, what I want to question is the reason that the state is given this legitimate authority is that it's considered the it has sovereignty, a supreme authority over a given population. And the reason that it has that give that supreme authority is because of, you know, the, the people, people within it. Fine. It is morally arbitrary to say that this this circle has the authority to wage war, but that area over there that hasn't put lines around it, hasn't drawn like lines on a map, doesn't have the authority. And then uh, the people within that circle, there might be different sub-circles, you know, like diaspora communities and stuff. So, but we say that because we've drawn these lines on a map, um, it's, you know, an Eddie Izzard quote, no flag, no country, you know, and you're just going, these are just such morally arbitrary things to say that a state is the one with the authority to declare war. Where I start to go even more frustrated is, why are we stopping at the state level? These things are so antiquated for accounting for humanity's interests. And they're so often inward looking and they become quite biased because we're only looking at our group of people or our religion. And so I always question the that supreme authority function of sovereignty and say, well, supreme authority, maybe in that, like in the... The traffic system of that land, because they're the ones that have to deal with the traffic system. But education, the environment is not is not stopping at those weird lines that you've drawn on a map. And so to say that they have supreme authority over everything in that land is ridiculous. And so I would go for more supranational supranational figures of authority to make these decisions. So why is it not an international government system? And then we go back to the same questions that you raised. Well, if it's an international government system, then who's making the choices? Should we be voting as humanity as to whether or not we should be going to war? But I think that the the challenge is understanding that in practicality, it's the state. But oh, heavens, no matter how we spin this, we have to think about why? Why the state? And and who makes up the state? And is it just the state level or should we be looking to an international? And we have those coalitions of the willing that it wasn't, we weren't giving people, uh, states, this authority to to wage war. We actually had to like get every, a couple of other random circles on a map uh, on board with this. So I think legitimate authority is another one of those things that is, is highly contentious. And that's why I took it from the other side. Great. Thanks, both of you. Should we just move on to some other conditions? Uh, I mean, you, you guys, I hope you guys are enjoying it, raising some great questions here, giving you a flavour of what's going on in just war theory. We've thought about right intention. Should we move on to reasonable chance of success? Any any thoughts about that one? Um, it's, I have the same problem with it that I do with all consequentialist uh, analysis. You have no idea what the consequences are. So it's only backward looking. We can only judge whether or not we had a reasonable expectation of success as to whether or not we were successful. And I'm going to do air quotes and say successful. What does success actually mean? The the question, and if we talk about pacifism, it's that whose peace? 
who actually won here? You know, you've completely decimated our land, but we won. Great. Is, is that, <laughs> so have we succeeded by being like hungry for the next 50 years? So yeah, I have a, a the same issue as I do with most consequentialist analysis of, well, we don't know the outcomes. We can guess, we can hope that we're right. We can use past experiences to judge whether or not we're going to have uh, an expectation of success we don't know because humans are going to make different decisions. So, yeah. So yeah, just to summarize that, cause I had exactly the same thoughts on, I've always had the same thoughts on this one. Reasonable chance is just so open to interpretation, right? And therefore politics gets in the way there uh, in some interesting ways. And then success, I mean, exactly how you define success as you, as you indicated, uh, Lauren is a big question. And in fact, just to go on from that, I mean, we're thinking about, what conditions have to be in place for you to go to war. But of course, as the war proceeds, what you define as success might change. And that's just an interesting issue to bear in mind before you're going to war, when you're trying to work out whether you have a reasonable chance of success, you need to realize you're going to be flexible, right? We were going there to defeat the enemy. But in fact, after six months, we realized all we want to do is get them off a land. And and that might be enough of a success. So or the or vice versa, and so that's really interesting issues that condition. Uh, Dan, I've also thought with with reasonable chance of success, it, it's always seemed out of odds with the other conditions. If the other conditions are good enough, if you've got a just cause that is declared and must be done, and your intention is good, and linking to a later one if it's the last resort, if all those things are in place, it shouldn't matter if you've got a reasonable chance of success. Not only because you can't guess whether or not you will actually be successful, and we don't agree on what success is, but if it is the right thing to do and you have to and there is no other thing you can possibly do but go to war in this moment, which is what the other conditions in just ad bellum seem to be saying you should be thinking mm. about, then why then do you go, yeah, but we couldn't possibly win? Okay, we won't bother then. I yeah. think it's designed to try and protect you from a sort of suicidal mission that you couldn't possibly win. But if the answer is, well, we're going to get killed by these people or we need to try and do whatever we can to try and defend ourselves, which seems to be the logical ways of why we should go to war, then in, in theory, it shouldn't matter whether or not uh, you've actually got any chance of success because what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, so there's different sorts of success, aren't there, just to build on what Lauren and I were saying. So there's success, which is defeat of the enemy and victory for yourself. There's a kind of uh, more limited victory where at least you get them off your land. And then there's a different sort of thing, which is it's the right thing to do symbolically. We just need to show that we're defending ourselves. And if we can do that, to some degree, that is that is itself a form of success, even if in some respects we might be defeated. So there's that line about lie, living, uh, you'd rather die on your feet than live on your knees or whatever. I was going to say, it can, success can also be just just slightly better than whatever happened to the loser. So they lost, you know, 50 cities. We lost 49 and a half. We've won. And you're going, really? That's success? Really? I wouldn't think of that as success in any other walk of life. And so why why is that success? Good. Okay, so then let's think about ends being proportionate to the means. You want any thoughts on this one? I think proportionality has changed with modern warfare. Um, and again, this goes back to that nuclear question, um, because a lot of people reject nuclear war because it's so intense and so immediate. And you're going, but it's if it's the same amount of destruction, why is it that it's a different amount of time that changes things? So, so what is proportionate is about what you're willing to lose. So, and I think if you're richer, you're able to 
lose a little bit more. And then you have like the needs of, of poor countries and well, a proportionate response in like for that country might just be, please, you know, we just need food. You know, this is what's happening. We just need some food. Whereas to another country, it might be, well, we have to bomb them into oblivion. And, and I think proportionality is going to be war specific, but going back to something that we talked about all the way at the beginning, but it shouldn't be any ethically different. And so then how do we change our understanding of what's necessary and how do we change our definition uh, or our, our expectation of what's proportionate by, by keeping the definition exactly the same? It's, it's this percentage that we're willing to lose. No matter what it means, it's this percentage and how are we consistent across different wars and different interventions? I think we've also got the problem of, again, knowing what we mean, because when we talk about chances of success, what does success mean? Well, proportionality comes from this idea that the evil done shouldn't outweigh the good achieved from going to war. And that's a very, again, religious, outdated idea. But, you know, what is evil? What is good? Who knows what we mean by these things? You know, if you think about certain wars where you victory ends up being come quite quickly with very little violence, but maybe changes the way of life of a, to a place to something that we call civilized way of life, like we used to do in colonial invasions and things like that. Well, in our mind, we have now done a good, I mean, Bertrand Russell is famous for this, saying, you know, colonial wars are very justified because ultimately, although terrible atrocities happened, we ended up civilizing people and we, we made a lovely place for white people to live. That's, you know, one of his things in the ethics of war. That is, from his point of view, an evil was done, but ultimately there was this good that came out of it and that's wonderful. And that's really troubling if we're talking about proportionality because actually, no, you know, talking about genocide again, whole people destroyed, ways of lives destroyed. And even if it was theoretically in, in his mind, a small amount of evil to achieve this great good, if you disagree on what the good was and the, the level of evil, that's an atrocity. So it, it's again, it's another kind of useless condition because it's very, very open to interpretation and can be misused by whoever the advocates of a war are to say, well, this is going to be proportionate because this is this, you know, significant good we're going to get. Or or the flip side, the classic, this is the worst evil in the world. Every single new person that we need to go to war with is, is usually built to us like they are the next Hitler, no matter who they are, you know, and, and I'm sure Hitler was the, the next someone else before Hitler <laughs> existed. You know, that there's always this idea they are the next big evil and we have to justify uh, the, this terrible thing we're going to do because the thought of them winning is so bad but back to guessing the future we don't know what the future is going to be we can blow out the evilness to all proportions and make a case that whatever bad things we do are going to be worthwhile because good vanquishes evil but we just don't know and, and doesn't that bring us back to another like this recurring criticism of utilitarianism and consequentialism that you go well we have to measure so we have to measure how much good and uh, what is it? Total good minus total bad has to be better than any other option. And so it will, we can figure out our, the proportional, uh, the proportionality based on some some variation of that calculus. And you're going, but what is the good? And if we don't know what the good is, and if we're not in agreement of what the good is, and I'm sure we could apply variations of utilitarianism to it. And some people go, oh, no, no, we all agree that this is the good. But because we don't know the full consequences, we can't actually calculate that. And so then it becomes a very similar consequentialist criticism or a criticism of consequentialism that we can't, we can't possibly determine what is good and bad. And so how are you even doing these maths in the first place? Good. Let's then just think about the final condition then and last resort. This one's straightforward, right? 
I don't know. I, I remember, I think it was Colin Powell talking about the window of diplomacy is closing on Iraq. And that phrase always stuck with me because it was such a ridiculous phrase. It's like we've, we've arbitrarily picked a window of time and said, you have to do this by this date. He hasn't. Therefore, the window of diplomacy is closed. It's a last resort. We have to go to war. And you, you go, well, well, just open the window a bit more. You know, it, it's when is the last resort is always usually based on kind of like a teacher, a futile teacher, sort of disciplinary thing where you go, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. And then you've kind of overstated what your punishment's going to be. And the student doesn't do the thing. And you go, I guess I've got to do that thing I said I'd do. Oh, well. Um, and you know it's not legitimate. You know it's it's over-proportionate, uh, disproportionate. And I think with, with last resort, often we set deadlines in negotiations with people that they don't meet. And then we say, well, we've tried everything. It's the last resort. And I think we haven't. I, I remember Jonathan Glover made a point in his book, Causing Death and Saving Lives, about you know, the, the the types of societies we've lived in, the types of education we've tried with societies are so few compared to the many possibilities out there of how to sort of shape a world that you can't say it's last resort because there's all kinds of other ways of imagining societies and teaching people about war and violence that might have made it less likely a war would happen, for example. You could start again from scratch and say, we need to rethink exactly how we do politics. We need to rethink all of this. There's always some other thing you could do maybe before you get to the bit where you go, we're going to have to kill you all now. We're going to have to drop some bombs on you. And so it's always usually a last resort based on some sort of arbitrary time measurement or treaty or some sort of thing. And I think a real last resort is just become self-defense things where it is the last resort because the war's already started. Someone's bombing you or something and even then there's a question of well a obviously it's not just war because they started bombing you before it was a last resort and is it war that you need to do as a response or is it self-defense and does self-defense have to be war well that's the whole question so i don't know when a last resort is the last resort but i guess it's uh, one of those things where you know when you see it and you go i guess it feels like a last resort but you know, sometimes that's also the result of propaganda in populations who feel we can't just stand by and watch this terrible thing. I mean, we're seeing it with Ukraine right now where people are saying, when are we going to get involved? You know, we're sending weapons, we're doing stuff, but we can't just keep letting this go on. Let's, we have to do something. And then people say it's the last resort just because public opinion said it was. And, you know, we might be wrong. So is it impatience or is it last resort, I guess, is the point. Lauren, do you want to come in? Yeah, what I was going to say about last resort was, well, it's it's only last resort if we actually want to go to war, because there is no last resort if we have no intention of going to war, if we just don't have the political will. And so once again, the stipulations, these conditions for going to war are all about whether or not we actually want to. And if we don't want to, we'll just keep moving that, we'll just keep moving that line, or we'll never even talk about it. We'll never give ultimatums. We'll just carry on business as usual as if nothing has changed. There's no war to be thought about. Oh, you people are all talking about war. I'm not. And so there is no last resort to talk about. And so I think that beyond being arbitrary, it's actually, I think it's one of the most important conditions. And yet it's completely irrelevant because it'll be the last resort when you decide that it's the last resort. And so it's only about whether or not you can label it as such. We need It, it needs to be more about a, a conversation about, well, are we doing diplomatic channels? Are we thinking about embargoes? Are we negotiating with different sides? You know, what are our interests here? What are we trying to achieve? What kind of success are we trying to achieve? But last resort is irrelevant because 
it'll be the last resort when we want it to be, when there's a political will for it to be the last resort. And that, that it's, that is the trigger point. So when, when I talked before about there being um, a just cause of, you know, the U.S. Go, going into the war for genocide, well, actually, we just needed a trigger point. And that last resort came up because we just needed a crossover point. That, that's what happened. We said, oh, they hit the last resort. You know, that's that's where we are now. Sure. So, so I think I agree on, on, on all of that, particularly the analysis of last resort. But I suppose there are, there are some sorts of situation where the last resort is forced upon you. So I'm thinking in particular of self-defense situations where you're a country and another country has invaded and in particular if you're in the government you've got a duty towards your citizens to protect them that's often said to be you know, the first duty of of governments of states and so there's nothing you can do apart from defend yourself which in fact of course is is termed last resort that uh, they termed um you know a war and it's your last resort because if you don't do that your people are going to get killed so in a way that the last resort is forced upon you yeah go on well, is that your last resort? And I'm thinking like the Dalai Lama and stuff where it's like, no, we're not going to fight. We we might be invaded. We might be burned down, but we are not going to fight. And so it's a last resort because there's the political will for it. I, I mean, I agree with you, right? Like self-defense is the reason that we it is the last resort. But there are still these outliers and outlier situations where you go, well, no, sometimes people just won't fight back or there is no possibility to fight back. We don't have the the military strength to do anything. And actually, our last resort is just to say, OK, take us over. We have nothing. We either don't want to fight you or we can't fight you. And so we just have to allow it to happen. Or our last resort, instead of fighting back, is petitioning other governments. And so I think that last resort. That's why it's a weird one for me because, well, it's whatever we need it to be, last resort. We can change it to whatever we need it to be. And sometimes war isn't even on the cards. Great. Listen, thanks uh, very much for taking us through all those conditions. We'll see you in the next part when we'll be thinking about taking part in war. And welcome back. Before we move on to this segment, this is just to remind you to check out our website. So if you search for Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, and if you're intelligent enough to be listening to this, you're intelligent enough to do that, you'll find my personal website. And there's a tab at the top that said Pod Schools. If you click on that, then I'm always updating the list of topics and the rough timetable we're recording them in. Have a look. And if you have any questions or ideas, about any of the topics you see, send them into my email address and we'll try and use your questions and comments in our discussion. And who knows, even though we recorded some episodes, we might re-record them. Lauren and Dan might be here in two years' time talking about war and peace again and we can ask them your questions. Um, So we've discussed whether we should go to war. What happens if and when we're in war? What should govern our conduct? Um, Dan, do you want to start us off thinking about this topic then? Yeah, um, usually these are two conditions, proportionality again, but this time thinking about proportionality in terms of your actual response and what you're allowed to do in terms of weaponry and things like that. And the discrimination against sort of combatants and non-combatants, so soldiers and non-soldiers, and the idea that it is justified to fight against an enemy soldier who are also part of the fight, but not justifiable to just kill innocent people. So there's sort of an idea that you're allowed to kill now, which is usually what we're not allowed to do because of these special circumstances uh, that we've, we've gone through. 
but even then there's limits to try and almost formalize it and say but that's why it's different than before because it's only a special circumstance that you are allowed to kill you're allowed to kill in a discriminative way against people who are trying to kill you and you are allowed to use a certain amount of force but not all the force so for example if if they you know bombed you you might bomb them back but not nuclear bomb them back or if they shot your leader you might want to go and try and shoot their leader but you're not allowed to blow them to smithereens and unleash your biological weapon on the country or something like that so there's things you can do and that would still be wrong now i've always had a problem with this actual distinction between just ad bellum and just in bello because the argument tends to go you could have a just war that you fight unjustly so you've got all the right conditions of, of intention and, and cause and stuff and it's the last resort but then you do something like drop a nuclear bomb and, and kill lots of innocent people or just like you bomb hospitals rather than military targets and that would be a just war for unjustly but my problem is the flip side where people say and you could possibly fight an unjust war justly because i think that the only reason we allow any killing or violence at all in the circumstances of war is because there is this justification that says somehow it is the only thing we can possibly do to overcome some terrible evil and the cause is right to restore pieces we have to go to war and if you don't have that even if you're very proportionate in your response of violence you know it's not justified so i think it doesn't necessarily work the other way around that you could have an unjust war fought justly so i do think they have to come in order you know if you don't have the just conditions you can't fight a, a just unjust war just because you were proportionate in your response in some way or you go we only attacked their military we didn't attack any innocent people but this does explain some of the sort of outrage people have with acts of, of, of terrorism we always talk about indiscriminate terrorism you know people blowing up a bomb in a shopping center or something the idea there is well they weren't soldiers they were illegitimate targets of a, of a war and there is no formal war been declared so you can see that there is a sort of intuitively compelling idea that there are certain people who are legitimate targets and certain people who aren't when we hear someone's bombed a school instead of a military target we we feel an outrage if we hear that uh, a regime is putting children around military targets or human shields we feel an outrage because we know those people shouldn't be killed but again back to the entanglement i think in the modern world we know that that's what war is it's kind of impossible to avoid killing non-combatants because we're usually dropping bombs out of planes from from miles away and even if you're on the ground with guns you know bullets fly and hit people and stuff happens and there's the victims not of the initial violence but just of destruction in the area you know chain of supply things that don't get through and destroyed buildings and, and infrastructure so you're always going to be bringing harm i think to non-combatants even if you say the idea is we shouldn't and that then again brings us to that question of well is it a good condition or not or is it a condition that's nice in theory but is so impractical it can never be met which could be the purpose because maybe the point is because you can't do that you shouldn't ever go to war even if it's just you can't fight it justly so back to what you were saying sort of at the end of the previous segment even if it feels like a last resort and we should go to war there's no way we can do that unless we indiscriminately kill lots of innocent people so we shouldn't we should find alternative methods and rather than go to war proportionality again if it is the right thing to do and the only thing to do we've got that question of well define proportionate if it's a existential threat and we can absolutely wipe it out maybe it is a proportionate response even if it seems 
to be going over the top because they only did a small little thing to us to start the, the attack in the first place. If their intentions are very, you know, malevolent and bad things are going to happen in the future, some people might say, well, we should stamp out that threat forever. So even their proportionalities are the same difficulties it had uh, in just Bellum as well. So, yeah, those are my first thoughts on the justice of what you do in war, is that it's quite hard to see a just way of doing it. Okay, thanks, Dan. Lauren, any thoughts on those two conditions? Uh, Dan, as you were talking, I wrote down the word that you used, entanglement. And I thought that was just such a great way of us starting to talk about Justin Bellow. Like, it's just this, well, it's it's a mess. It, it's complex is not even enough. It, it's, a, it's this great entanglement. Um, and I think, and again, in foreshadowing a conversation about peace, you know, how, how are we even talking about justice when we're saying that humans, soldiers, but humans are legitimate targets? Because then you're going, oh, okay, so they get stripped of their humanity because their government has decided that they're going to war. So then you go, well, can we ever justifiably kill a human and use them as a means to our own end of of war? And so again, it's, I know it's foreshadowing in, into a conversation about peace, but if we're going to talk about justice in war, we have to, you know, elephant in the room, really? It, then, then maybe there's never any justice in war. And I think that's what you were saying as well, Dan, that like, there's this possibility of, well, there is no such thing as justice anymore. You can do your best. You can try really, really hard, but, um, you know, whatever. The, the other thing that I was going to um, talk about was Walter's supreme emergencies. And it's a bit of a crossover between uh, just Ad Bellum and into just and Bellow because it's this, well, when is it okay to fight, fight for ourselves and fight for our lives. And I went, I went and found the quote while, while you're talking. And it's a, a supreme emergency exists when our deepest values and our collective survival are in imminent danger. And you go, okay, our deepest values, great. So, um, you know, our proportionality and the necessity of this, the necessity of, of, of fighting is our deepest values. Yeah, but whose deepest values? Clearly not the people that you're killing. You know, oh, it's okay. Well, um, and I'm not even suggesting in a religious war, but you have one country who says, you know, it's democracy and it's freedom, and these are our deepest values. And you go, yet yeah, survival's my deepest values. So they're a bit in conflict here. And and so you have this this deepest values conversation, and then collective survival. But you were going to kill the other people, so it's not collective survival. And so I think that discrimination becomes hard because you go, well, they're still human, right? They, they didn't get stripped of their humanity. And what is a, a reasonable target if you remember that everybody's actually human? And our, our joint humanity kind of gets lost uh, when we even discuss these these uh, criteria. So d- discrimination is is a little bit ridiculous because, well, you're still hitting people. And so is it, can it ever be ethical? Meanwhile, I, I do agree with war. It's just a matter of yeah, I have serious, there's serious problems here with, with these, uh, the way we're thinking about it. Proportionality, well, is any killing proportionate? Is any death ever going to be proportionate? And then that necessity, as long as at least, it's at least the harmful means, the least harmful means were picked. And you go, oh, okay, so some humans dying and being used as a means to an end is acceptable, as long as we limited them. And and it's it's just so contrary to thinking about justice, especially if you take it from a deontological perspective. Great. Um, thanks, Bethy. Just just some thoughts from me. I suppose just listening to, to the two of you, particularly your, your opening, Dan, and just linking it back to what we were saying 
uh, in the previous segment. You know, if, I, if I'm a student, actually, there are so many problems here with justice in war that it, it brings us back to that question very squarely, which is perhaps there can't be a moral war. There might be war, it might be justified on other grounds, but it just can't be justified morally because it's so difficult, right? And then the, the next thought I had is, and again, this is, I mean, I, I hope helpful for students. So there's that interesting distinction we always read between competence and non-competence. But actually working out who's a competent and who's a non-competent and who therefore is a legitimate target is really, really interesting. And you can play around with lots of examples. So I'll just give a few and then, you know, students, you can think of your own, right? So obviously there's a soldier who's there in uniform, who's carrying a weapon, right? And he was there in the field and they've been firing their weapon quite recently, right? Then there's the soldier who's in uniform who hasn't got access to a weapon, or there's a soldier who's got a weapon by them, but they're out of uniform. Perhaps there's a soldier who's on R&R, right? Because they're fighting for two or three weeks, then they go on R&R. This happens quite a bit, actually, in war. Are they competents at the moment when they're on rest and relaxation? I mean, they're part of the army. They're part of the war machine. They haven't left the army. They're just relaxing at that moment. And then when you're thinking about civilians, there's you know politicians who've created the orders, and, and, and launch the war. There's people who are financing the war, financing the, the military war machine, the factory owners. Then there are the people who are working in factories. There are the people who are designing propaganda posters. There are people who aren't designing propaganda posters, but they're working in the bureau, in the advertising bureau, on some other project, And but they're in the same building as the people designing the propaganda posters, right? Which one of these people? are legitimate targets and which ones aren't and i think i mean as i say there are tons of examples you can dunk up because war is a is a complex business and so thinking who it is you can target in what sort of way is very interesting and then yeah just think about that proportionality so there's we've mentioned nuclear war we've mentioned conventional war chemical warfare there's also assassination and various various other sorts of things one can engage in in war and thinking about what sorts of action are justified against what sort of target is, as I think we all agree, very, very complex. Um, well, that's one of my problems with this whole just war idea is it's still looking to how we can justify war. And there's a massive assumption there that war is the thing. And I've always thought, back to what I was saying about legitimate authorities sending off soldiers to die, like the whole system of militaries is this odd utilitarian gamble that says we are going to send this minority of people off to save the lives of the majority. But you could take that logic to an even more natural conclusion and say, well, there should just be one-on-one -on -one fights. You know, if, if Boris Johnson wants to go to war with Russia, then him and Vladimir Putin should have a, you know, no holds barred cage match. Pay-per-view pays for the war effort, so it doesn't cost citizens anything. And we all agree to the conditions that whoever wins the fight wins, you know, the, the battle. And that's it. And that might make us sort of laugh as the imagery, but actually it puts far fewer people at harm's way for the same idea. It's as absurd as killing thousands of people. And nowadays you don't even have to have a physical fight linking to AQA and simulated killing. You could just say, well, the two can set up an army campaign on Call of Duty and fight each other, you know, go on Fortnite and kill each other or something. And whoever wins that is the person who wins. 
your, now, your Boris, sorry, your Boris Putin uh, example, you know, like in a boxing ring or something. But isn't that hearkening back to knights on horseback, where you actually had hand-to-hand combat, and that's why maybe this just war tradition that was developed, you know, centuries and centuries ago, it doesn't work anymore because we don't do that kind of combat. That it's just, it's just such completely different war that these these criteria don't work anymore. Sorry, I got I got visions when you were saying that. Yeah. But it's the thing, it's we, we've just, we assume that war is the is, is sort of natural conclusion to these stories. And the, the natural conclusion should be right. I'm, I've, I can't, you know, agree with, uh, with Saddam Hussein, so I'm going to have to fly to Iraq and have a fight. And we watch, you know, Tony Blair versus Saddam Hussein, George Bush versus Saddam Hussein, whoever it is at the time in whatever war. And we watch the fight. And if it wants to be a tag team match of other coalitions, they can, they can do that, you know, however you do it. But that would actually be the people who have to fight making the decisions and putting themselves at risk. It's very clear who the combatants are. They can, you know, train. And if we all agree uh, to, to abide by the decision of the fight, then, you know, we probably change our uh, electing process to try and get some, some decent warriors in office. But it seems as reasonable. And if there's a problem with that, there's definitely got to be a problem with that times thousands. And we have, we send off our representative soldiers to fight for us instead. Right. Uh, loads of ideas there. <laughs> should, should we leave that one there and we'll see you all in the next segment where we think about uh, after the boxing match or after the war, we think about um, what happens. And welcome back. So we've been thinking about all of those classic conditions uh, about going to war, about a war being just. We've just had a discussion about our conduct within war. Uh, now we have to think about what happens after there's been a war, because there's still some very interesting moral and political questions around that. Lauren, do you want to sketch them out for us? Yeah. Uh, so I think that the just war criteria are less often applied in mm-hmm. after war situations. And so I guess we can just keep those in the back of our head and use them as, as lenses to, to see some of the discussion that we're having. The post-war that I always think about, sorry, I'm a World War II baby, like not, not physically, I wasn't born then, but uh, that's the war that I studied the most. And so I think about what happened maybe after World War I and you know the, the sanctions that are put on Germany. And then that caused political upheaval, civil upheaval. And then it's, it's always said that that caused the, the reasons for uh, the rise of Nazism and then the starting point of World War II, that it was actually about the sanctions that happened and that that's what changed everything. And so you go, okay, well, then maybe we have to think about the conditions that are put on after a war. So I think that there's the conditions put on the loser, again, air quotes, the loser of the war, uh, who's putting those conditions on, what reasons they have for those conditions. So are they trying to have the kind of justice that you're you're going down, you know, like it, it's mm-hmm. the it's the punitive justice, you know, you're you're going down. That's it. Or is it this? You have to make things right, and that usually ends up being a bit more financial. Or is it just look? You just don't get to do this anymore. Uh, maybe a Japanese look. You don't get to have a military because we need to make sure that we're going to be safe. And so there's all these different ways that we can look at justice, but the problem that I see is that there's no end game to this justice. Because it affects things 
for the rest of time. War ends. And so even if the the trauma is still around and the death is still around and, you know, the destruction that happened, it does end. And then the aftermath is justice, is how we're developing a post-world society. And so I think that a, a post-bellum uh, justice is so weird it's creating a new world order. And so it's actually applying justice, themes of justice to a new world order. And every time we have a war, the victor gets to reimagine the world in their likeness. And and it, it's too much power for any one state. It's it's too much responsibility for any one state or even any one group of states. Um, and so I, I worry about the idea of justice because we haven't figured out justice pre-war and so the idea that we're putting terms and conditions on justice after war kind of throws up a lot of one red flags, but also how the hell are you going to do that? So that, yeah, that's my, my ponderings on postbellum. <laughs> Dan? Yeah, I think the idea that we haven't figured out justice going to war and in war would show that there's a problem with the justice we'll have after war. But I'd also say we said at the start, you know, killing in war is the same as killing in, in everyday life. And these things aren't that different. And I would say we haven't really figured out justice in everyday life either. Exactly. Yeah. A, a, bit, yeah. a big problem here is, you know, punishment is, is one of the ideas. What, what happens to the losers of the war? Something has to happen. And that is a narrative, you know, we have in our own societies where the, the criminal has to go to jail. There has to be something done. And that doesn't work. You know, we can see recidivism. We see people uh, punished for endless you know, years in jail. Does it make them better? Does it make them worse? Does it help anything in any way? We call it justice. We say it's deserved, but there's huge problems with it. And if we don't know what justice demands to reform people or to make the world a better place when bad things happen in civil society, why do we think one random nation gets to impose their particular view of justice because by the way we disagree on other countries ideas of justice as well you know some people have more capital punishment or corporal punishment things like that that we that we think is wrong here we don't agree on it on what justice entails in society so why we would think we should impose it on another nation and again if the just cause of going to war was clear and it was the last resort there must be something we want to achieve and it should be peace and that should be the conditions of post bellow as well, because we have now finished the war. We should have achieved that thing that was why we went to war. And that should kind of be the end of it. Everything should be about ensuring peace can prosper, not about punishing and compensating, unless it's about you know rebuilding. But even then, we've got the question of, well, what does it mean to rebuild? Are we rebuilding in, in our image, a liberal democratic image? Are we rebuilding in their original political image before we went to war? Um, who gets to decide what the correct vision for their society is, except for them. And in that case, we don't do anything but just leave them to it. And so then if we're reinstating, if we're putting justice, justice, whatever that is, in place, but that was actually what caused the war in the first place because of an imbalance of power, because somebody was imposing their ways on another country. And you're going, we're actually setting us ourselves up to fail in this vicious circle of, OK, so then we'll have relative peace for this number of years. But then the same conditions that caused us to go to war in the first place. Well, well, we've all obviously because we haven't figured out peace in general, obviously, we're just going to rehash the same wounds or reopen the same wounds. So uh, th thanks both of you. So I'm just thinking again from the students' point of view, because there, there are there are obviously going to be, I mean, so, so it's a big tangle here. 
uh, and we're thinking about winners and losers. And let's think with let's still think with a winner's point of view, and then I'll I'll come on later on to the losers' point of view, right? So, Lauren, you started us thinking about Second World War and and, yeah. and the conditions from First World War to Second World yeah. War. There, there was that you know very interesting history. It's a it's a classic classic case and example to think through. But I, and I always think of what happened post Second World War in Germany where there were conditions imposed, but there was a type of rebuilding and just thinking about what, what Dan was saying, a kind of dialogue also, but kind of quite a forceful dialogue about this is this is how we're going to rebuild the West German state. But of course, there was that carving up yeah, between yeah. America, Britain, France, and then Russia. We had West Germany, East Germany. It'd taken a long time to have a reunified Germany, and they still got things in their constitution. And I think even though that evolved and we had a, a split country which then reunited, that's a kind of fairly successful rebuilding of, a, of an economy and a society. So there's got to be, so I think when you've got some sort of aggressor state, someone might think, well, there's got to be some conditions that we force them into, but there's also, got, there's basically got to be sticks and carrots, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, and I agree, right? And I think that the, there's always terms and conditions that we can put on even, you know, criminals or, you know, children, <laughs> like, well, you've misbehaved, so you get your tablet taken away, you know, like terms and conditions to keeping a peace and um, getting your just desserts. It, it, it is there. That's fine. But is it as uh, just as we like to think that it is? It's just in that moment. But then think about future generations of Germans who are still apologizing and still feel guilty when they weren't even, their parents weren't even born when it happened. And so this long-term trauma actually uh, puts a country on the back foot. And yeah, at the time, that was the intention to like go, back off now, like slow down Germany, you know, like you're, you're getting too big for yourself. We're going to, we're going to keep you under our control and that split divide of power. And that's great. But the long-term consequences of that aren't necessarily fleshed out. So we can say that there's a lot of good that came out of that economic stability, political stability. You know, it, Germany is the leader of Europe. We, we have the United, the European Union coming out of this and, and Germany being this big uh, player in the European Union because of what we know they're, they're capable of now and in, in this beautiful way. But you also have a lot of apologizing and, and this, this change of mindset that maybe uh, change the culture of a country. And so for better or for worse, and and that's an unintended consequence. And so I think that we, when we talk about justice, it's still relative to what we are hoping it to be, what we think it could be. There's still these caveats of, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's still not like the best thing that could have happened. And so I don't think that we can have a totally just Peace. I don't think that's ever going to be possible because even when it's, for all intents and purposes, a very just um, decisions how to treat somebody after they've lost the war, I, I don't think that you can possibly understand the ramifications of that. Think about if if something else happened in Europe 20 years after World War II and Germany doesn't have a military, and oh my God, now what are we going to do? We need, Germany's on our side. Germany is a powerhouse. We need Germany to be on our side. Oh no, but we've taken away their military. And so there's these little things that I don't think that justice 
the idea of justice actually captures. I don't think it, I don't think justice and peace are synonymous. I don't think that we can say that, you know, peace comes when we've done justice because, well, who's peace, what justice, and is it really just if we think about it from all the different ethical perspectives? Yeah, good. And just uh, before Dan comes in, yeah, at the time of recording, of course, Germany's been thinking about its own military spend in relation to what's been happening in, in Ukraine. Um, Dan, do you have anything to add on this? Yeah, just sort of what you were saying about dialogue. I think I think the, the closest we can come to a just post-war, uh, a justice post-war, is having an encouragement of those dialogues. But then I also think it can't just be at the end of a war. We, what we are acknowledging when we say we need dialogue, we need to acknowledge the past, we need to think about what went wrong, we need to get communities of people who are fighting to come together and maybe you know, have reconciliation type uh, things like uh, truth and reconciliation in South Africa and things like that is, and in Germany, in fact, where they sort of teach the history of what, what happened and think about it very seriously. Like, why did we as a country go down this route and not this route? And what can we do about it to prevent it in the future? And I think that sort of education and dialogue is really important, but it's, it's also important to be doing that and recognize that before we ever get to the war phase. So back to the last resort, if we know there are tensions and various issues in our country or between countries, then maybe the government's sort of main job as a legitimate authority should be to encourage these dialogues between groups of hostile people to try and find commonality and, and find that um, shared humanity. Because I think one of the things Lauren was saying is when it came to sort of how we're killing in war, is that recognition that we stopped identifying certain people as humans and stopped identifying our sort of shared uh, existence. And it makes me think of, uh, of Judith Butler's idea of sort of, we're talking about justice. She talks about how you can't have equality if we grieve for people in different ways. And what war seems to be saying is that we don't grieve for those people in the way we grieve for these people. And we need to extend what she calls grievability to all humans and, she says, even non-human animals and sort of have that recognition of our interconnectedness. And the more we can recognize the interconnectedness, and she makes lots of interesting points about, you know, how we're all very interdependent. No one is actually an individual because we're all reliant on, like you were saying earlier about who is a non-combatant and who's a combatant. We're all interconnected in all these different ways. So her point is that the more we recognize that interdependency, the more we extend our grievability for each other, the more we have a sense of justice. And that creates a, a social world where we are very unlikely to go to war because we, we can't kill those people. We would grieve for them. And we can't fight those people. We would grieve for them. And we start to understand each other and recognize that we may have differences, but we're interconnected. And I think we can't wait till the end of a violent conflict to, to get to that bit. We need to be doing that now. And really, one of the conditions for a just war is, if we're talking last resort, did we do everything we could to create those conditions of justice? And if we had, then any blip in that that led to violence should be quite minor. And the, the post-Bello world should be quite clear. We continue those dialogues and figure out what went wrong the, the most recent time. Yeah, and just, just illustrates some of that. It doesn't illustrate all the education, but the thing that, that came to mind in, in terms of the grievability, or at least kind of um, fellow human human feeling, like certainly early on in, in the Ukraine war, there were lots of those stories about those, you know, 17-year-old conscripts that, were, that found themselves fighting in Ukraine on the Russian side and had no idea that this is what they'd signed up for. They thought they were just on military manoeuvres and just practising. And I think quite a lot of Ukrainian people realised this and they were, you know, they had these soldiers, they captured them, 
but they they were allowing these these poor lads to phone home to tell their their moms and dads and their families that they were okay and that that was that was quite a a striking moment, I thought, in uh, in that war. Sorry, uh, Lauren, you were going to say something. No, I, I I had never heard that like that joint that grieving. I think think that's that's a beautiful way of putting it. And the thing that I was just thinking of is Ubuntu, um, you know, in African philosophy, and it's I am because we are, and it's that recognition of not just recognition of humanity, but I don't exist beyond humanity. I I only exist because I am part of humanity, and and so. W- if we're recognizing not just grievability, because that is about interconnection and maybe uh, maybe it's a bit of uh, empathy or sympathy for that joint humanity, but maybe we can also take it to a different level and say, I only exist because I'm a member of this humanity. And and maybe that's the way of thinking about what what we're looking for as far as justice and what we're looking for is peace. Um, I, I love the, the grieving, but the Ubuntu is the thing that keeps popping up in my head. I am because we are. Great. Can I just move us on then and think about what it's like to be a loser, as it were? I mean, first of all, I'll say, I mean, in order to give us some structure, people do think about winners and losers in war. I mean, I think all three of us would question that terminology, but at least it gives us a structure to think about. But there's some interesting questions if you're on the losing side. So there you are. You're, perhaps you've been the aggressor country, perhaps not, but you've, you've lost some war pretty you know, conclusively, unarguably, let's let's imagine. And then there are the interesting questions then about whether you continue the war or not, right? And whether there's guerrilla warfare or terrorism or, you know, violent conflicting forms of resistance. There are other forms of resistance as well, of course. And there are some interesting questions there about whether you accept that this is the end and therefore you settle down your life and, and perhaps the aggressors have stopped aggressing and they're trying to build a country. They just want to have power within that country. Or so there's all sorts of interesting issues there about, about then what your attitude is in, in the following period about whether you carry on the fight, which might then result in more fighting happening. And, you know, not just you being killed, but lots of other people being killed and you, you just keep an, inflaming the war, or whether you settle down, and accept the result and then you move on. And there's just very interesting ethical issues. I don't know if, whether either of you want to talk about that a little bit. It just made me think of in Afghanistan when the Taliban came back to power. That seemed to be sort of the response from from the people. You know, there'd been lots of war there, and it almost was like, look, we're not going to fight. We're just going to let you take over again because we're not going to stand up and do anything. And maybe we even liked it before. Maybe we're going to choose you as our government. But even if we're not, we just aren't going to fight. We, you know, because there's no point in putting our lives at risk. So we said earlier about, you know, reasonable chance of success. I think that is when you link that those two together, sometimes you can look at those calculations and go, my definition of success is, I guess we just don't fight anymore. We accept that these people have won for better or worse, and we get on with life as whatever life can be under this new regime, that is our life now. And you could argue that, yeah, you know, in all kinds of different war situations, Possibly the uh, the fear of what it would be like if the the enemy won and and you had to live under under their regime is is no great terrible thing actually in reality compared to the reality of everyone dying if you go to war. So maybe after you, you try to do all kinds of things and fight back, you just go, now nah, you can you can have it and we'll <laughs> we'll stop fighting. And that that you're right might be a way of making a war just is knowing when to tap out. Like again back to sort of combat sports. They're too, they're too much for us. 
there is no point in continuing this fight. You win. I love that. As, as a, I'm thinking Vietnam, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking your comment of, you know, tap out. All right, we're, we're not going to win. We're tapping out. But then you see a country like the U.S. just kind of ignore that it happened. And so is being a loser, Do you are you actually required to accept that you've lost and not just accept it and stop fighting, but like you've stopped fighting, you've gone home, la, 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 didn't happen, right? So like, so there's these weird things of, I think the only reason that the U.S. was able to ignore that they lost in, in Vietnam was because they are powerful and the, and Vietnam had no intention of coming onto U.S. soil and, you know, beating them back or anything like that. And so maybe... Uh, the loser was able to get away because the winner said, actually, peace is all we wanted. And so maybe there's a conversation to be had in there that, you know, U.S. going into Vietnam, they had a reasonable expectation of success that was trampled. Um, and then, it, but maybe it's the Vietnamese going, but actually the reason that we're doing, we're going to keep fighting is to to stop you from fighting us. And, and that's it. And, and I don't know the ins and outs of the Vietnam War. We weren't actually taught it in school, um, interestingly enough. <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise. And this is why this is why it's funny to me in this in this like weird way, because it's well, if we don't acknowledge that we lost, we don't have to tell anybody that we did and it didn't happen. And then there's no um, there's no embargoes put on you. There's no restrictions put on you. And so actually, after the fact, you can be a loser and just carry on as if you won, if you have the right amount of power. And so then the just war criteria go out the window because it didn't matter that you had a just cause or not. You, it, it, it doesn't matter. You, you are back in the same position you are with a few less, you know, uh, men of fighting age kind of thing. I think that face saving is a really important thing in diplomacy and, and post-war stuff. And I think that's one of the things where you look at international conflict and you go, if we'd have just let that country go around and say, yes, we won, even though everyone knows you lost, then maybe we would have stopped some conflict further down the line. And if we could have a thicker skin about some of the things people say and not go, well, we have to have a response. I mean, I think the best example is possibly 9-11. You know, it was a terrible, horrible atrocity, but it was the action of a few individuals doing a, you know, a, a terrorist attack that maybe they got lucky, quote unquote, with that they happened to cause more destruction than they thought when they flew some planes into some buildings and the whole buildings collapsed and thousands of people died. But ultimately, as maybe uh, grotesque as it sounds, a few thousand people dying, if America had just said, you got us and we don't like it, we're going to do criminal investigation and find out who did it and bring them to that kind of justice. And we're going to think about terrorism. And we're going to think about terrorism. Funding agencies. Yeah. Yeah, and but instead they were like, well, we can't be seen to let a country or, or individuals from a country attack us. We have to fight back. And and sort of they felt they had to fight back. Whereas if we'd have just had a better way of saying, yeah, they got us, but we're you don't have to forever look at us as the country that got attacked by terrorists because you're not going to point and laugh and we're going to pretend it didn't happen, but we're going to do some policy changes and think about what we've done. And again, with the sports metaphors, I don't know where they're coming from today, but I mean, that's the thing in sports, isn't it? You, you lose, you have a bad match, a bad season, whatever, and you kind of have to acknowledge it. But next season, you also have to move on and have learned from those mistakes. And you can't always be like, well, you lost a match in 1984. So we, we think you're a terrible team forever. And I think possibly the more we kind of allow countries to have a bit of dignity, 
in situations like that. Again, the less there'll be hostilities. It's about that dialogue again, where Vietnam and America can have a chat someday and say, you did some stuff, we did some stuff, and uh, we all kind of regret it, but we've moved on and that's fine, as opposed to the winners and the losers narrative. Yeah. Dignity post-war. Dignity and humanity post-war as maybe as opposed to justice. Maybe that's what we're, we're shooting for. Yeah. Great. Um, thanks, both of you. Let's leave it there. And we'll see you in the next segment when we talk about pacifism. And welcome back. Uh, before we start on this fourth segment... In case you want to know more about just war theory and pacifism and all the topics we've been talking about, there are loads of books out there. Two things I find very useful uh, when I'm teaching and when I'm thinking about things are the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. uh, And they've got some entries on just war theory, on pacifism, uh, which are all really useful. uh, And you'll get even more detail than you've got out of this uh, already long podcast, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so, Lauren, Dan, we thought about the morality of war, going to war, in war, after war. But let's think about the other side of the coin, shall we? Let's think about peace and pacifism. Uh, Dan, do you want to sketch things out for us, please? Yeah. Unfortunately, pacifism is probably just as complicated as war um, because there's lots of caveats and distinctions as there were with just war. But I think what I like about pacifism and what's important in discussions of pacifism is if we've been carrying through this idea throughout the podcast that killing in war is the same as killing outside of war and we need to morally justify it in the same way we would morally justify any kind of killing. Pacifism has a really important role in saying we are the viewpoint that we already hold, that we shouldn't be going around killing people. And all of the reasons, we've we've raised loads of objections to all of the just war theory criteria even the ones we agree with that we think that would be important in ascertaining a just war, we've said, but we're not sure quite how it would work and whether you can do it. So there's already been some serious questions about whether the concept of a just war is even possible. And a pacifist at its most basic level is someone who is saying, yeah, it's not. (laughs) You're right. There are problems with going to war. And uh, I think it's William Hawke says, it is our normal moral presumption that killing is wrong. And pacifism sort of has the moral high ground in any discussion about war, because it's saying we don't have the burden of proof to have to prove that pacifism is a justifiable moral position. Pacifism is what we already have. War has to have the burden of proof on justifying its existence. So pacifism, um, I think, has a really compelling case for it, which is it's already what we think. War is a disruption of our sort of intuitive pacifism. But there are distinctions of the sort of pacifist. So you you could be uh, an absolute pacifist who says, you know, you are against all uh, violence or war. And even then, are you an absolute pacifist about war specifically, or are you an absolute pacifist about all killing and violence? And, th- and they're two different distinctions as well. You could be a pacifist who says, actually, in self-defense, if I was being attacked on the street, I would fight someone. But war is never right, right for the reasons that we've we've talked about. Um, it's, it's too big. It's a different thing. It's outsourcing violence to militaries to do things. There's too many moving parts for it to ever be justified. But in theory, as an individual, violence might occasionally be justifiable. It's never justifiable in war. That would be more of a sort of selective pacifist of, of what it is I'm being a pacifist to. 
or an absolute pacifist who says it, it's war, it's violence, it's everything. Um, there is, you know, no justification for violence. And that could be for personal reasons of you think, you know, human life is really valuable and you shouldn't violate someone's autonomy. It could be for religious reasons where you think there's a sanctity of life because God created it or sort of Hindu and Buddhist ideas of ahimsa. There's a principle we shouldn't harm anything. There's all kinds of reasons you might be an absolute pacifist. You might be uh, a selective pacifist, but you also might be a selective pacifist who thinks that war is OK, but not nuclear war or war is OK, but not chemical or biological warfare. War is okay, but not wars that involve torture or whatever your particular thing you want to select as problematic. There's also um, pacifism like, um, I think on the Edexcel thing, it calls it relative pacifism, which uh, Bertrand Russell calls it as well, but it's also been called contingent pacifism. But it's the idea that you are a pacifist because you can't see a situation where war would be justified, but you do conceptually believe that war could be justified. So if the right war came along that you thought was justifiable, you wouldn't be a pacifist. So you're not a total absolute pacifist because there would be circumstances when the right war you might be able to support. So that would be where like the just cause, as you say, as, as uh, Michael Walters says, that the idea of that sudden shock that makes us go that we can't just stand by. And, and that's what Russell was, was someone who sort of said, I'm against war, I'm against all kinds of things, but actually this Second World War is starting to bother me. I think maybe maybe fighting might be justifiable here. So you've got that kind of pacifism as well. So there's all these different kinds of pacifism. There's different directions of what it is you're being a pacifist about. And I think what's interesting about pacifism, certainly um, looking at this back to A-level, from sort of the, the ethical theories in AQA philosophy that don't look at this, they look at simulated killing, but if you apply your utilitarianism, your Kantianism, your virtue ethics to questions of war. Well, from a utilitarian perspective, you could say war has so many unforeseen consequences and definite foreseen uh, unhappinesses that it can cause. Pacifism seems quite a nice utilitarian position. We never go to war. If everyone doesn't go to war, we'll be very happy. So we've got a sort of imperative not to go to war. We know Kant says you can't use people only as uh, means to an end and war is basically doing that specifically with soldiers and Kant spoke of uh, you know perpetual peace and wanting to have the conditions in place so that we would never have to go to war again and so certainly from a virtue ethicist point of view if we've been saying all along killing is something that we are normally against it would definitely be a vice to be someone who goes around killing people and anything that habituates vice rather than virtue would be something you want to discourage so pacifism would say we should be discouraging anything that might habituate those other negative moral things. So it seems that whatever your ethical perspective from those three theories for just religious reasons, non-religious reasons, there's all kinds of reasons to say it's very clear that fighting in general is wrong, that violence is often wrong, murder, killing is often wrong, and war is a very special kind of mass killing outsourced to militaries in these particular ways with very questionable conditions that allow it it's definitely therefore wrong and it should either be completely always avoided in the absolute pacifist viewpoint or in pretty much any situation you can think of. Maybe there's this one magic solution, but most of the time we should avoid it. So, yeah, I think pacifism has a lot going for it as a, as a perspective on war. OK, thanks. Uh, Lauren? I'm going to start from exactly there and say pacifism has a lot going for it. And let's go with it's the right way that every conversation we have about war is ridiculous. Like, like, like let's start from this premise, right? That it's, it's ridiculous. We should never go to war. Pacifism is the ethical way forward. Now let's unpack 
uh, a little bit of what peace means and and what being a pacifist. And uh, Dan, you said something about, you know, well, if we all agree to be pacifists and we all agree not to engage in war, well, then we're fine. And I'm going to transition that into deterrence and nuclear deterrence and say, okay, well, we've all agreed not to use these nuclear weapons. So we're in a state of peace, right? And no, absolutely not. And it's this, this fake peace, because if we're living with a constant threat, then it's not real peace. And we can say that constant threat, that constant worry, I mean, it's possibly one of the reasons that the West is not doing anything about Ukraine, because Russia has nuclear weapons. And so we can't be sure that they're not going to use them. And so our hands are tied. And so are we really in a peaceful situation right now? Like we're not getting invaded. No, no one is you know, trying to do anything to us in the UK here. But are we actually in peace if we're worried that the threat of nuclear weapons exists. And we've agreed not to use them, but that doesn't mean that the threat isn't there. And the, and the reason that deterrence works is because it's based on the threat. We, we know that we're not going to, but it's that little bit of doubt that makes deterrent work. deterrence work. And so if I start from a position of peace and pacifism is the right way forward, well, we are nowhere near that. And there, there's no way in a world that has nuclear weapons for us ever to reach any kind of pacifist humanity because that constant threat, it's like being uh, terrorized. It's like, you know, uh, constantly having somebody knocking on your door. You have this constant threat and so you can never live in peace. So there, it's beautiful. I think it's in an ideal world. Isn't pacifism this I- idealist? It's an idealist position to have because I don't think that it is possible, not only not to get everybody to agree to it, but also because there's all of these things that just exist that mean that we can't be pacifists. Um, the only other, the one other thing that I thought when I was doing my reading for this, when you talked about contingent pacifism and for professional obligation, and I thought that was, so the clergy are usually uh, considered that they have a professional obligation to be pacifists, that they're not going to fight. But then I was actually talking to a member of clergy, a colleague of mine, and she was like, well, you know, should clergy carry guns if they're serving in the military? And you go, is it is it possible to have these professional obligations to be pacifists if you're part of a system, if you're part of a world that believes in war. And I, th- I, th- I just thought it was a really interesting thing, like the, the professional, does your duty to your profession trump your duty to your society, duty to your joint religion? So, I mean, if you're a religious person, do you have a duty that's different? And then why are your duties so much more than somebody else's? And, and I mean, I think professions have different duties to other professions, but do we have different duties as humans to be pacifists? There, there's that deontological argument again, you know, which duty trumps which duty? Uh, thanks, both. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. Yeah, can, can I come in? Um, so I've got three things buzzing around my head. So I just just list them all, and then we can try. And, so I think just think about what you were saying, Lauren. Yeah. So I've got friends of mine who've been clerics in the army, and there's that interesting issue there, right? So I mean, just to, just to, just take going on from from yours about whether you carry guns or not. Actually, whether you whether you're a member of the clergy in the army or the, or the navy, any armed force, right? So clearly, you might think, well, that's going against what you've signed up for, which should be, you know, if you're a Christian, you should be about peace. But then you might think, well, it's really important that soldiers or or naval officers or whoever it might be have someone they can turn to in moments of 
high anxiety, which of course is what anyone serving the military will, will often experience. Uh, and so there's something, there's, there's a really interesting tension um, there. I mean, you could write a whole kind of philosophical essay about what it's like to be that type of person and, and that that philosophical tension. Yeah, go on, Laura. And then it's the tension is also that you're two professions at once. You're yeah. a soldier and a member of clergy. So which which profession trumps with which and when yeah. and why? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the second thing I was going to say, yeah, just going on from, from both what you're saying, Tia, there's loads of these really interesting distinctions in, in pacifism, which if you're a student coming to think, oh, it's just pacifism, it's just, you know, not, you know, being against war. But in fact, there's loads going on. And in fact, so your your example, uh, Lauren, again, following up from what Dan said about the nuclear deterrence, there's that threat, there's that anxiety. So we're in a stalemate or a nuclear detente or whatever it might be, but we're not in a state of peace. And so there's something very interesting in pacifism, which is, is it defined as being anti-war or more broadly anti-conflict or anti-terror as, as kind of Dan was saying or is it something more positive whether you're trying to create a certain sort of society where there are positive virtues explicitly uh, cultivated around mercy and compassion and love and that's a very different sort of pacifism right then, then the whole distinction that, that Dan was talking about absolute versus contingent uh, I mean just going back to some of the examples we were thinking earlier i mean so someone might say perhaps this is a question then then back to the two of you someone might say look it's all very well being a pacifist but there i am let's imagine i'm a pacifist in ukraine or have been in the last few months and i've got some people who have just walked into my country and they're shooting people right so what do i do there but you might want to think i'm, I'm a pacifist but this is just clear and present danger i've got to pick up a gun and i've got to do something so what, what do we think about that sort of case well, I was going to say, I think linking to both the, the Ukraine example and the nuclear example, I think maybe the idea of pacifism we or, or I put forward at the start is maybe too passive a view of what uh-huh. many pacifists think pacifism is. It's not just sitting there going, well, I'm not going to fight. Yeah. It's not just sitting there going, yeah, uh, they've, they've walked into our country and I guess I'm just going to sit here and let them all kill everyone. It's, it, it is that thing of trying to create a positive peace and thinking about what what you can do for a society where human flourishing is going to happen as opposed to human violence or uh, non-human violence as well, if you include uh, non-human animals with it. So I think if you look at some of the thoughts on pacifism, there's been the idea that pacifism can actually be a strategy. So I think it's Gene Sharp talks about strategic pacifism, that by being pacifistic, you can use that as a political thing to draw attention to a particular form of violence, structural violence, systemic violence in, in the world and show a violent uh, institution. So, for example, the police, if you think the police are particularly violent by not resisting uh, arrest, but still having violence used upon you, it makes a quite a compelling point. And I, I think the idea is the more that people do that, the more we start as a society thinking about violence and going, why do we respond with violence? And, and it, it's sort of a disruption, that normality of violence. So this is also something that I think it's Karuna Mantena says about Martin Luther King and uh, using the work of Gandhi. And he was very inspired by by what Gandhi did in India um, and South Africa of nonviolence. And again, both of those cases were the idea of there is a violent system by using our nonviolence in a forceful way, in a civil disobedient way that is actually fighting back against violence by not fighting, but fighting in a different way. We sort of show the violence of that system and expose that violence and make people think about that. And the idea of all of that is to try and develop what Hawke calls pacifist way of life, where we end up in a world where the more we think about violence and our violent interactions and intersections of different kinds of violence within society and internationally, the less likely we are to use those things. 
So back to the nuclear deterrent, at the moment, we had um, issues with Jeremy Corbyn saying he wanted to maybe get rid of the Trident submarines and people saying he's crazy, it's an important thing. And that's probably what people would think if you live in a world where that's really important. But the more you see the disruption of violence narratives and the more you see the uh, active nature of nonviolent resistance to things and the, the way it can change certain things through nonviolence, the more I think people start to go, hey, maybe violence isn't the way. And maybe if we did get rid of our Trident missiles, we would encourage those people to get rid of theirs. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, it's working as a nuclear deterrent, but we are still at war with these different people. So it hasn't stopped war. It's maybe stopped nuclear war. And it's only stopped nuclear war because we'd all destroy each other. We'll take the gamble on getting rid of ours in the hope that we will slowly de-escalate because maybe if we have nuclear weapons, but we haven't stopped war because we're not going to escalate to nuclear weapons, if we can all get rid of nuclear weapons, then maybe war will be the thing that we don't escalate to and we can find non-violent alternatives to that sort of conflict. So I think it's a more active thing, pacifism. It's resisting the norm of violence. It's resisting the sort of compulsion towards violence and patriotism and jingoism and all that sort of stuff and saying there are other ways of solving that conflict. And the more we see it, the more it hopefully the pacifists would argue would would create conditions where, yes, the current world is based on violence and there's lots of problems and there's always that high anxiety, but we can de-escalate the anxiety the more we de-escalate the violence until eventually violence becomes unthinkable or certainly not the first thought we have. And then it really becomes a just uh, a last resort. Great, thanks. Uh, Lauren, any thoughts on that? Yeah, just it, that, that idea that we're working towards de-escalation because it's about the peace. I was reading on nuclear deterrence, obviously, in preparation for this. And something George Kennan said uh, is, well, if somebody launched a nuclear attack on us and it, you know, it decimated our fields and stuff like that, I wouldn't launch in retaliation, would you? you know, and it was this rejection of an eye for an eye morality saying, look, we're decimated. I'm not launching another, like, there's no point in doing this. And so maybe when you were saying, you know, Corbyn was trying to maybe get rid of the tridents and de-escalate things, it's it's the first time, it, really on this podcast, it's the first time that I'm thinking, oh, because would we really retaliate? What would be the point? What would be the point of retaliation? And so then is deterrence actually just this false political narrative that keeps war, our constant war footing? I, I, that was really interesting you saying that. So thank you. That brought me back to all the different things. Uh, great. Thanks, uh, both of you. Perhaps we'll, we'll leave uh, that segment there and, and indeed add, end all the podcast. There's loads of really interesting ideas there. And if you've been listening, I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, I hope it's inspired you to go out and do lots more reading and thinking and, and, and discussing with uh, teachers and, and your friends and, uh, and, and parents and everyone else. But we should certainly say thank you to our guests. So thank you very much, Lauren, for being with us. Thank you very much. And to Dan as well. Thank you very much. Great. And uh, all being well, we'll see you for another Philosophy Get Schooled. Mm-hmm.